will, I will speak about, about the economy, uh, but as, as many of you will know, the, the economic dynamics of what goes on in Sudan are very closely tied to the uh, political decision-making. Um, and I'm going to try to, to talk about both the consequences of the referendum for the North as well as for the South. And I'm going to try to explain to you, on the one hand, what I think is the economic legacy of the CPA period and even the negotiations before the CPA. <coughs> then I'll try to say something about the, uh, the way both the SPLM and the, the NCP, the Alingaz regime, have been preparing for this, because this is not something new. They've known that this has been coming for quite a while. And, and thirdly, I'll say something about, about strategies that I think could be, could be useful in thinking about the long, about the long term. Right, thank you. So in the, in the subtitle of my presentation, as you can see, is, is Life Beyond Scary Statistics. As many of you will know, the UN has a document called Scary Statistics when referring to southern Sudan. And so I'm going to try to see whether there is any life beyond these horrendous statistics and these horrendous facts and these dystopian images of the future for, for both North and South, or whether things really are as bad as, as, they, as, they, as they seem. So as I said, and I'll talk a bit about the transformation or so-called transformation of Sudan since 2005. Uh, I'll say something about the implications of the referendum and the long-term challenges after July 2011, and, and in particular, of course, relating to oil, water, and agriculture, because those really are the three key domains, I think, on which most of the discussions take, take place. Now, the first thing to realize, and this is, again, you know, coming back to Sherrod's point about, about history, is to remember the time at which the current regime, the Alin Gaz or, or Salvation regime, uh, came to power. Uh, it's hard for people perhaps uh, to imagine today, but when Alin Gaz came to power, there were fuel and even food shortages, famine-like conditions, almost everywhere in Sudan, and that includes Khartoum itself. And one of the key aims of the, of the new Islamist government was exactly to remedy this, this profound economic, economic crisis. And this is a story which, which many people have underestimated. Traditionally, the focus has been on the, on the social engineering, on the cultural transformation of northern Sudan, of, of the whole of Sudan, but not so much on this very controversial but very effective uh, program for, for economic salvation. And one of the things that Alin Gaz prides itself on is exactly being able to um, end the famine-like condi conditions in, in large parts of, of northern Sudan in the early 90s, despite being under, under American sanctions. Uh, this was a time when um, the engagement with the IMF was cut off. Uh, Sudan had a huge mountain of debt uh, facing itself. It had foreign exchange problems. Uh, most people were going on a meal once every day, sometimes once every two days. Um, but the, the very brutal and very, very harsh treatment of both opposition parties and trade unions uh, did uh, yield some success in the sense that it brought some, some kind of stability, which really then allowed the regime to, to, to produce some kind of takeoff from 1999 onwards. And 1999, as many of you will know, is the date that Sudan starts exporting oil. And oil really, really changes the game. And all changes the game because since then, uh, northern Sudan, for better or for worse, really has been transformed economically. In many ways, we still talk, of course, about Khartoum and the rest of northern Sudan. And to some extent, that's, that's true and it's important to, to continue to emphasize the incredible inequalities in northern Sudan. But it's also important that we recognize that this is no longer the same country as it was 10 years ago. Now, just to, to give you some statistics, these are World Bank statistics of the past 10 years, GDP has quintupled over the past uh, 10 years in Sudan. GDP per capita has also doubled. Um, we haven't just seen, you know, monetary increases in, in wealth, we've also seen a steady expansion of children, primary school, houses, uh, houses built, schools built, hospitals, an expansion of the road networks, 
an impressive dam program. All these things have been paid for with oil money or money that's associated to these oil projects, i.e. Uh, the drawing in of foreign investments, and particularly the CBA um, has allowed uh, Khartoum to project at least an image of, of stability and we're open for business. And it's been particularly um, profound, of course, after, after the split in, in the regime in, in 1999-2000, the battle between the Sheikh and the Field Marshal, between Hassan al-Turabi and, and President Umar al-Bashir, which has really allowed the winner of that context, the President and the people around the President, to reinvent themselves in many ways. Now, I'm not trying to say whether they, this is a genuine recycling or not. That's not my point. But what is important is that the current people in, in power in the regime have downplayed some of the ideological transformational elements and have shifted to what I would call the so-called competence agenda. The, the, the motto these days is, you might not like us and you might not like Sharia, but at least we put food on your table. And this is very much the, the, the motto, the, the new thinking of a lot of you know, so-called reformist elements within the regime who describe themselves as, above all, competent economic managers. They say, yes, we are the most ruthless regime that this country has ever known, but we are also the most competent regime. We also make sure that the economy grows, that roads are built, and that schools and hospitals are there for people. And that's something very, very important, and I would argue that this has created a substantial minority of people who actually support um, this regime, not based on any grand ideological visions or even any kind of, um, kind of emotional attachment to, to the people in power, but based on economic opportunism. And it's, it's very, very important when we think about regime changes, uh, what this group uh, of people who've done so well under this competence agenda will do. It's also particularly important because um, the Alingas has used a lot of the money to break the, some of the old patronage networks. Sudan, as many of you will know, um, was, was, was characterized by, by two very strong religious economic patronage networks in particular, the Ansar and Khatmiya. Um, up to a large extent, the ruling party in the north has been able to co-opt some of these, to violently destroy some of these networks, um, but has shifted significantly, particularly in the city in northern and eastern Sudan, uh, to build a, a, a network of support that, again, should not be, should not be underestimated. One of the things, for example, that was striking about the elections in April uh, was the degree to which the NCP didn't have to rig a lot of the elections. Uh, because in, in, they were very, very successful in, in co-opting, I would argue, a lot of these networks. And so we've seen this, this discussion about the rise of a new middle class, you know, an argument that we've also seen in Turkey, the, the fusion of, on the one hand, capital, and on the other hand, <coughs> Islamism. And, and you do see a, a lot of businessmen, a lot of entrepreneurs who on a very superficial level, flirt with this kind of idea of piety and, and Islamism. And, and just like, if you like, the 15th century Protestants like to say, you know, we are, we are businessmen, but we do this for, for very deep ideological, ideological reasons. Now let's shift for a second to, to southern Sudan, if this is the picture in northern Sudan, where we are today. Now of course southern Sudan, as you, as you will know in many cases, this is not state rebuilding, this really is state building. There is a nigh total absence of, of physical and, and human capital, and I will illustrate that in, in just a second. There's, of course, the, the issue of the returnees, uh, hundreds of thousands of people who are leaving northern Sudan, who are going home, but the question really is, what are they returning to? Because there is very little there for them. And, of course, there's the issue of the, of the resource curse. Um, for those of you who are political scientists in the room, the government of southern Sudan depends for 98% of its government budget on oil. Um, now, even if you, if you know the examples of Nigeria and Iraq, this is a staggering amount. 
Now, the really worrying factor might also be that by 2020, most of the southern oil at current exploitation, um, at the current exploitation pace will run out. And so the question is, and then what? Um, because this is the reality in southern Sudan. Southern Sudan, which has about 8 million people, um, uh, is currently a situation where 4.3 million people received food assistance last year. So that's half of the population that is dependent on the World Food Program and World Food Program assistance to survive. Now 1.5 million of those is facing severe food insecurity, which again means one meal a day or one meal every two days. Now there are many st statistics that we could contemplate and, and talk about. I personally find the example of the 15 year old girl always pretty, um, I mean it really drives home the point I think. Because a 15-year-old girl in southern Sudan is not just more likely um, to be pregnant than to complete primary school, which I think already is an extremely shocking fact in and by itself, but she's also more likely to die, while, to die whilst giving birth than to complete primary school. And so when we are talking about an absence of, of human capital, we really mean it. On birth, this will be one of the poorest, if not the poorest country in the world. So the magnitude of the task that we're facing there, in terms of security, in terms of physical infrastructure, in terms of human capital, really is astonishing. And despite the $7 billion of oil money that have gone to the south in the past couple of years as part of the CPA, very little has changed about all of that. I mean, if you look, for example, at the roads, so there's 42 kilometers, 42 kilometers of paved road in all of southern Sudan. Remember, again, all of southern Sudan is an area which is not that much as small than, than all of Western Europe, um, and that number includes airstrips, then you know we have a, we have a problem in terms, of, in terms of infrastructure. Now, moving to some of the preparations for secession and some of the, the more, the more you know, long game that is being played by, by the actors here. Now, on the, on, on the side of the, of the government in the north, um, the petrol era is definitely coming to an end. This extremely successful period of over the past 10 years where we've seen economic growth, 6, 7, 8, 9%, really is ending. The North will lose 80% of proven reserves of oil um, in, in Sudan. Um, more, moreover, most new explorations are likely to be in the South, not in the North. There's some searching going on in both North and, and South Darfur. But the truth is that many experts are not particularly um, optimistic about those. Abia, the Abia issue that Sharif referred to, of course, is a kind of wild card, but even if you know, the North would, would get to keep Abia, this is not going to allow it to continue this oil boom. I mean, the oil fields around Heglik in, in Abia uh, are running out of oil too. And so this, is, this, this can really only prolong the transition, but it can't really change the fact that the oil era is coming to an end in, in northern Sudan. And this, in many ways, I would argue, is why a lot of the long-term regime strategists have been investing heavily in something they call the hydro-agricultural mission of Alingas. Now what this really is, is the, is the idea that you need a second engine for economic growth and, trans and, and, and transformation in the north. And that engine will be on the one hand Sudan's dam program, which is extremely ambitious and unprecedented for a country that poor in terms of the money that's going into it, the political capital, and, and even the institutional setup. But it's also agricultural revival. Uh, today there's a lot of talk in, in northern Sudan, and, and for those of you who know their history, this is not the first time, of Sudan re-emerging as the breadbasket of both the Arab world and, 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 and East Africa. Now in the past, all these experiments with Sudan trying to become the breadbasket and producing enough food to feed all the Arabs and the Africans have failed abysmally. 
Um, but the hope is that with a mass infusion of, of cash, and, and, and particularly an emphasis on irrigated agriculture, and hence also the dam program, um, that that in gas cannot just compensate for some of the, of some of the oil money, but it actually tie people closer to it, because of course oil does not employ a lot of people. And if you can do agriculture in a, in a good way and have the incomes of a lot of people in the north rising, again, this might become part of the so-called competence agenda, and they might be tied closer to you. Now, this does not, I mean, this kind of long game, of course, does not in any way detract from what Cherith has rightly highlighted, which is, the, this is a very, very serious short-term crisis. I mean, there's a massive foreign exchange crisis. I mean, there are rumors as to how much currency reserves are left, but most analysts estimate it's two to three weeks uh, worth, of, uh, worth of imports, which really is not that much. Um, there are very severe cuts being, being implemented in the patronage networks. Actually, in the last budget, even the, the Republican palace, i.e. Omar al-Bashir's uh, palace, has seen very, very severe cuts, up to 20%. Um, the sugar, price of sugar have gone up because subsidies are being retracted. These are very, very sensitive issues. And there are rumors of intifada that you can hear all across Sudan, and the Tunisian example is a, is a very potent one. Now, more to the point, of course, the question is also whether the regime can maintain internal unity. And historically, this has been one of the, one of the weak points, of course, of the, of the Islamists. Uh, the 1999-2000 split was a very, very dangerous one between the old godfather and his, his former lieutenant. Uh, but right now, I think what we're seeing uh, are actually three camps. There's a first camp of people who are arguing that Alinga should really stop being Alingas. It should become a normal autocratic African regime. It should stop pretending that it should adopt this transformation agenda. And what it should really do is take 60% of the seats in parliament, rig the elections now and then, but stop all this business of war and of Sharia, and essentially focus on getting foreign investment, which it will desperately need to transform the economy and to survive. This is the first camp. The second camp of people, which I think is a minority, but it's a powerful minority, are people who say no. This is our chance to properly do the revolution. We came to power in 1989 promising the salvation. We failed because of the war in the south, and this is our chance to actually remake Sudan. And this, this power struggle between these two camps is, 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 is going on as we, as we speak. When I was last in Khartoum, you could, you could see it everywhere because there's NCP cadres are criticizing the president and other people as, as never before. There was one key Islamist who even published an op-ed calling on Bashir to go to The Hague. Now it's rumored that Bashir ordered his arrest, but that he wasn't arrested. And that meant that somebody in the regime said no, nobody touches him. And Bashir knows this. And this is what's currently going on, and the president and his vice president um, seem really in two minds, and that's also why I think we have this very confusing communication in which sometimes there are calls for Sharia and an multiculturalism and a return to war. And at other times, there's this talk about coexistence, about peaceful reform. I don't think this is Alingaz being very clever and putting out different things. I think these are the signs of a very powerful power struggle. And that's exactly also, of course, why, why Hassan al-Turabi was, was arrested. Now, what way forward do we, thus, do we thus see for both North and South taking, taking all of this into account? But the first thing is, I think, an obvious point, and it's been made by many other people, but it's that oil can really work for peace instead of triggering war. And the reason, if I can just show you this map, is that there's only one way of getting at the oil in, in Sudan. Um, in order for the South to, to profit from, from the oil, 
it always needs the north because there's only one pipeline. That's the that's the that's the. Um, let me quickly show it over there. There are only actually two. Well, there are two pipelines, but both of them. There's one pipeline which starts here in, in Bentiu, and there's another pipeline over here in Upper Nile. They both go to El Obeid, where there's a refinery, and then the oil is taken to Port Sudan. And so, in order for the oil, Sudanese oil to be sold, all the oil always needs to go there. Building a new pipeline has been suggested to, to the Kenyan port of Lamu is probably a non-starter. This is the idea that some southern politicians have entertained for a long time, saying this will free us from the northern stranglehold. But the truth is that such a pipeline would take a lot of time, at least five years, to construct. It would take a huge amount of money. There are massive geographic uh, difficulties in actually constructing it. And for those of you who are a little bit aware of the security situation in places like Eastern Equatoria, Northwestern Kenya, this is probably not a good idea. I mean, what you should picture is the, uh, the Niger Delta uh, kind, of, kind of situation, probably. So this really is a, is a non-starter. Now, in many ways, that's good news, because that means that the North and South are interdependent. The South needs the North if it wants to continue selling oil to the outside world, which it will need to do if it wants any money to build its new state. And the North, therefore, has an incentive in keeping the South as a friend if it wants to reap any benefits at all uh, from oil uh, in, in, in the future. Now, secondly, um, there's, of course, the, the water issue, which, is, as David rightly said, is an issue I, I work a lot on. In many ways, the water issue is a more dangerous issue than the, than the oil issue. The oil issue fundamentally is a bilateral issue. There are only really two parties who need to come to an agreement. Hypothetically speaking, we could lock Bashir and Salva Kiir into a room, give them 24 hours, and they will sort it out. It will probably be a very ugly solution, and nobody will like it, but it might just work. For the water issue, it's slightly more complicated, because as many of you will know, there are very serious vested interests in keeping the Nile landscape as it is today. Egypt, for example, is for 97% dependent for its agriculture on Nile waters because it sees so little rainfall. Um, and therefore, Egypt will resist any attempts that are currently going on to renegotiate the current architecture around the Nile Basin. We're talking allocations here, who gets to build dams, how much water you can use for your irrigation, etc. Even though for countries like Ethiopia, upstream countries, it's a very old grievance to renegotiate this because they say, well, it's all fair and well for Egypt to use this water to feed its people, but we ourselves have a massive food deficit, both in terms of what our people can actually eat, but also in terms of what we produce. And particularly with climate change as a long-term threat to our agriculture, we need to renegotiate this entire thing. And in this context, it's, I think, extremely worrying that we've seen this dramatic increase in rhetoric between Cairo <laughs> And, and, and Addis, up to a point where in November, for the first time, President, uh, Prime Minister Melissenawi went on national television to accuse Egypt of supporting Ethiopian rebels through Eritrea. Now, that's quite something. This is not just some general or some low-ranking minister launching some accusation on a talk show. We're talking about an Ethiopian Prime Minister who goes in prime time on national television to say, Egypt, stop this, or we will actually go to war. Um, and of course, I'm not about to suggest that we're about to see a war in the next couple of months because you know, things are a bit more complicated than that. Uh, but this in many ways I think is a, is a far more dangerous uh, background, particularly because Egypt and Ethiopia, even though they're unlikely to fight directly, um, have massive interests in Sudan and might well um, decide to play rather dirty games depending on how they see their interests uh, shifting. 
Now the final argument I want to make is that there are three key decisions that need to be taken, I think, to get the economics of secession right in the long term, and therefore also the politics of secession. My first argument is that the key determinant of war and peace in Sudan is essentially what the regime in Khartoum decides. Of course there are many different factors that come into play, and of course this is, uh, there's, there's, there's all kinds of elements that, 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 that interact, but I think fundamentally if I was to choose one factor that will determine what war and peace are going to be looking like in northern and southern Sudan, it's essentially what the regime decides. Does the regime indeed decide to um, abandon Alingaz and as I said become an ordinary autocratic African or, or Arab regime, or does it indeed try to relaunch the revolution? And that really is a key decision uh, that will come out of this power struggle, uh, which has a huge impact on, on everything else. Secondly, and related to that, is also what Sherrod alluded to, this is the dilemma of the Americans. Do the Americans deliver on their promises to lift economic sanctions on Sudan, to scrap Sudan from the list of terrorist sponsoring states, and to re-engage uh, them in a, in a normal diplomatic way? Or do the Americans say, no, we cannot implement all these promises as long as there is no peace in Darfur and as long as we don't see a democratic opening in northern Sudan. Now whereas you might well argue for the latter because of the leverage it continues to give Washington over northern Sudan, um, I also think that might be quite a dangerous thing because these promises have been made for a very long time and I think that in Khartoum patience really is running out. I think if the Americans play it well, they can actually back up a lot of the more reformist elements in the government uh, and help it shift out of this kind of Alingaz mode. Um, but if they don't do so, I think it might well embolden uh, some of the, of the most fanatical and most extremist elements who do still have a lot of power in the government um, and who might well therefore decide to, to relaunch the revolution. And thirdly, with regards to southern Sudan, I think there's, it's very important that the UN and the World Bank uh, begin a very serious rethink about state building in general. Now, as you know, we have a lot of very bad experiences with international administrations or international protectorates or whatever you want to call them. But southern Sudan, uh, by and large, will become one of those international protectorates after July 2011, if only given the huge development challenges and, and the violence this is likely to produce. Now, over the past five years, our experiences with the so-called multi-donor trust fund, the common fund that the international community has used to further development in South Sudan, these experiences have been overwhelmingly negative. Uh, most people agree that this has not led to any kind of profound structural, socio-economic or political change in southern Sudan. And so it really is important that we think very hard as international community about how we are going to assist this new state in building its institutions and preventing a meltdown in the first six months to a year after independence. So thank you very much.